You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. That was a lot of work for three verses, and the sermon's going to feel like that. I got a lot of things to say about these three little verses. It would be easy to just read over these, I think. Uh, the, the passage that comes before it and the passage that comes after it are like well-known and they're so compelling. And often these verses in the middle sort of just get lost in the mix. But I can assure you, they did not get lost in the mix on the day that they were read at the church in Philippi. Uh, the way these letters worked is Paul would write the letter, he would send it, he would deliver it through a messenger and usually that carrier would read the letter at the gathering of the church. It was like a sermon. And so near the end of this sermon, Paul says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to like get it together, to agree in the Lord. Can you imagine if I got to the end of the sermon today on unity and I was like, look, let's make this concrete. For example, I need Ophelia and Janice to get on the same page, to work out their differences. And like, you'd be like, well, what? Church just got real interesting just now. That is the thing you would be talking about on the way home, 100%. That's what happened here. In this passage that we looked at last week, Paul was cheering for them and motivating them to pursue Christ above all else. And then this week, he's giving them some application. So, You might have left the sermon last week, the 14 of you that were here last week, you might have left motivated to do a number of things. But I'm pretty sure that none of you left thinking, yeah, I want to pursue Christ above all else, and I think my next step in that is to deal with conflict in my life. I just don't think anybody was thinking that. But that's the next step that Paul gives them in their pursuit of Christ. And because he's saying, look, pursuing Jesus is not a solo project. We do this together as a community. Most of us tend to avoid or minimize conflict. And when we do deal with it, we often resort to these unhealthy patterns, behaviors, and attitudes that we've kind of carried with us our whole life. We have this kind of fight or flight mentality when it comes to conflict. And Paul would say, and does say in this passage, that that our mentality is precisely the issue, the problem. His word is mindset. He uses it throughout the New Testament. And I want you to see this. We're going to spend a minute here before we get started because this is the foundation of where we're going today, this idea of mindset. To set your mind on something in biblical language means to put that thing or to have that thing at the center of your thoughts and desires. And whatever's at the center of your life, it forms you. That, that governs how you think and feel and act. That's your mindset. And so back up in Philippians 3, verse 19, Paul uses this phrase. He's, he's talking to people who aren't pursuing Christ above all else. And this is what he says about them. He says that their mind is set on earthly things and therefore their glory is in their shame. They, they delight in, they glory in things that they should be ashamed of and their belly is their God. They're governed by their own appetites and their end is destruction, he says. So earthly things are just things that you can perceive with your senses. They're not inherently bad. But when your mind is set on them, when things of earth are at the center of your 
life. They lead you to destructive behaviors. This is what James says, James 4. He says, what causes quarrels and divisions among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? And he goes on to say that the root of your conflict is friendship with the world. Now, in in Philippians 3, verse 20, so it's the verse right after he talks about mindset on the earthly things, he says, but our citizenship is in heaven. Our mindset, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. All he's saying is, look, we Christians belong to a different world, another world, a world in which we wait for our Savior, Jesus. Do you know when you, when you wait for something, it just it like consumes all your thoughts and desires? Think about just like waiting on a package from Amazon and multiply that by a lot. That's what he's saying. That's where our mind is. That's where our thoughts and desires on is on the, the glory and the transformation and the power that is to come in Christ. Listen, that mindset transforms the way we deal with conflict. When our minds are set on earthly things, you know, it's just you and me and the things we want. And we sort of get stuck in that rut. It's hard to get out of that. But when our minds are set on the things of God, then it's not just you and me and the things we want. It's you and me and God and what he wants. And that changes everything. Now there's something bigger than the issue, something bigger than us, something bigger than this whole world that we can agree on. So the way Paul deals with conflict in the church and the way we deal with conflict is we put God at the center of it. And so three simple questions for us today. What does that mean? Why does it matter? And how do we do it? All right, what does it mean to put God at the center of our conflict? Well, the key phrase is in verse two, if you want to look at it again. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree on the Lord, in the Lord. All right, what does it mean? Well, it's more than just finding middle ground or agreeing to disagree. The world does that. Paul's asking them to do something the world can't do, which is to agree in the Lord. It's a whole way of thinking and feeling and acting that puts God at the center of the relationship. So this word agree is the Greek word for neo. And I only tell you that because it is a common word in this letter. And so if you do a kind of a survey of the various ways it's translated, then you can begin to get a sense of its meaning. And so I'm gonna, I have these on a slide. I'm just gonna roll through them really quickly to give you a sense of it, okay? So in Philippians 1, Paul says, it's right for me to feel this way. So the things that are underlined, that's the word for neo. And this is how it's translated about you all. And two, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Have this mind among yourselves. The the mind of Christ is what he's talking about. His humility and love and servanthood. In chapter three, let those of us who are mature think this way. If any of you thinks otherwise, God will reveal that to you. And 19, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, their glory is their shame. That's the verse we looked at. Their minds are set on earthly things. Our key verse, would you 
agree in the Lord. Here it's translated agree. And then finally in chapter four, verse 10, he said, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me. That's all the same word translated in, in various ways. And here's what we can kind of pull together from it. To agree in the Lord means for people to think the same way, to think and feel the same way about something. All right, about what? You see, I don't think Paul is asking them to think the same way about whatever the disagreement's about. I think that's one of the reasons he doesn't name it because that's not really the issue. He wants them to think and feel the same way about a bigger issue, the bigger picture of what it means to exalt Jesus and know him. And so that's the whole flow of the letter. In Philippians 1 and 2, what it means to exalt Jesus is to imitate him in his humility and his love. We looked at the great Christ hymn in Philippians 2 and it tells us that Jesus left his glory and came low for us. There is no lower place he could have gone. His humility brought him to the deepest lowness that the world has to offer. Economically, he was poor. Socially, he was maligned and ultimately he was condemned to death on a cross and there's no greater shame in the world than that. And therefore, because of his humility and love and servanthood, God has highly exalted him. Jesus, the one who went low, is right now in our midst the exalted one. And the way that we exalt him in our daily lives is to imitate him, is to become like him in his love and humility and service to others. In Philippians 3, we exalt Jesus by pursuing him above all else. And so Paul has a new mindset now in Christ. He's willing to suffer the loss of anything this world might have to offer him so that he might gain Christ and know him. And then in chapter 3, verse 15, he says, let those of us who are mature think for Neo this way. Let's agree on this, that Jesus is better than anything else that knowing him and becoming like him is the best kind of life we could possibly have. This is what we agree on. He's he's asking these women, he said, hey, I want you to make your goal in life and therefore your goal in your disagreement to know Christ and to exalt him above all else, to let go of whatever is, is keeping you from pursuing him together. If they can do that, then they can agree in the Lord. And what that will mean for them and what it means for us is that we don't have to fall into the same fight or flight patterns. Because look, getting the upper hand in the relationship is a loss compared to knowing the power of Christ's resurrection. Defending yourself is a loss compared to sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Digging your heels in is a loss compared to standing firm in the gospel. Proving yourself that you're better than someone else is a loss compared to striving side by side in the gospel. Often in marriage counseling, by the time I get to the situation, the couple is just lost in the weeds of all the little things they're fighting about that aren't really the things they're fighting about. You ever been there? We all have. The things we're fighting about are actually just like, the culmination of lots of years of not fighting about the right things. And so now these are pointing to that, but we don't know it. So by the time I get there, my job is to kind of like pull back out and help people see the bigger picture. 
And so that's what I try to do. I sometimes will make couples look at each other and tell each other that they're not the enemy. Debbie had to do this at a marriage conference. We had to sit knee to knee in a room and say out loud, you're not the enemy. It was weird, but we still do it because that's what happens in the world fight or flight syndrome. You sort of think of the other, other person as the enemy. I'll ask them questions about the bigger picture like, hey, tell me about your wedding day and tell me how you felt about each other on that day. And then I'll say, Can you, do you have hope of a future day in which you feel that way? And, and more so, that you have a, a deeper love and commitment for each other for having come through this. Can you see that? Do you have a hope for that? I'll ask them, do you think that God is present in your marriage? That he is so eager and willing to help you through this? That he wants healthy reconciliation for you. Do you think that? See, these are all things we can agree on, aren't they? And if a couple can back up and agree on these big things, then they can begin to have perspective and the tools they need to work out the smaller things, the things that are keeping them from pursuing Christ together. I've seen some pretty crazy transformation just in that first conversation by simply trying to figure out how can we agree on the big things. When God's at the center of our conflict, then conflict is not a fight or flight moment anymore. It's an opportunity to be transformed by the grace of God. And when that happens, we become salt and light to the world. All right, to agree in the Lord then is to agree on what matters most. And then from that place to resolve the issues that are keeping us from pursuing Jesus together. Second question is, why does this matter? And it is an important question for us. I've been witness to a lot of conflict, as you can imagine, like with you. And one of the reasons I see of why we don't deal with conflict is because we're not really convinced about how much it matters. We kind of know it in theory, but it's not in our heart, in our gut, about how much it matters. And so look, Paul doesn't just like the idea of unity. He has deep theological convictions about it that are driving him in this. And and these convictions just saturate the whole passage. I want you to see it. Uh, First, he has a conviction that our citizenship is in heaven. We've, We've talked about this, but here's what it means practically. We don't have to defend our position in this world as if this is all there is. We belong to another world. Our citizenship is in heaven. We can let go of stuff. When we humble ourselves to love and serve each other in the midst of conflict, it's, it's otherworldly. That's what Jesus said. Look, when the world sees how you love one another and how you have unity in me, they're not gonna be able to explain it in any other way than to say that God sent Jesus from another world. This is otherworldly kind of power. Second, he says, we're the family of God. So the request to deal with the conflict comes in verse two, but before that, in verse one, he starts by calling them brothers and sisters. They're brothers and sisters because they've been adopted into God's family. So look, the good news about Jesus is not just that our sins can be forgiven. That's true. It's also that we have been adopted into, we have a new family Jesus said this family, our identity in this family, our allegiance to this family even surpasses our identity and allegiance related to our earthly families. It's that real, that strong. And so if you've been coming to church and you've been wondering like, how do I get in on this? What does it mean to be a part of this? Listen to what John says 
John says, look, Jesus came to his own people that rejected him, but to those who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave them the right to be called sons and daughters of God. That's all you have to do. Believe in Jesus and you can be adopted into the family of God. In the Lord, we're brothers and sisters, children of God, members of his household. Now, this isn't just theological truth for Paul. There's, there's affection that follows. Look again at verse one. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, my beloved. It's like a love letter. It's weird. This is how much he feels for them. He says, who are you to me? Your loved ones. This truth that I'm bringing to you is packaged in so much love. And, and you're longed for. This isn't just that Paul wants to see them and be with them. This, in chapter one, he talks about is, is sharing the affections of Christ for them. He longs for them to be formed into the image of Christ. He's given his life to it. In chapter one, he says, I'd rather leave, to be honest. That'd be better by far, but I know it's better for your sake that I stay, and so I'm gonna stay for your progress and your joy in the faith. He longs for them. Love for people makes us their servant. We deal with conflict because we care about each other. If you don't care about these people, if your love for them doesn't compel you to move toward them, even when they've hurt you, then we're not acting like a family. Certainly not God's family. Last thing, he says, we're co-laborers in the gospel. So in verse three, these women, he says, labored side by side with me in the gospel. Them and Clement and some other folks, we were fellow workers in this cause. So I want you to think of a family business. Right? In a family business, the business it's like, a, it's like a family mission, isn't it? Yeah, and the relationships are all tied up in the mission, in the business. So if there's problems at home, if siblings aren't agreeing with each other, if the siblings and the dad are fighting, then if there's problems in the relationships, there's problems in the business, aren't there? The business suffers. Listen, we have a family business to be salt and light in the world, to make disciples of the nations. If there's division among us, the mission suffers. Because God accomplishes the mission through his people. We can't labor side by side, you and me, if our backs are turned toward each other, if we're just avoiding conflict. Nor can we fight the good fight if we're fighting each other, right? That makes sense. Gospel work is striving side by side in Christ. Agreeing that that's what matters the most and doing whatever you have to do to get on that page together. The exhortation to agree in the Lord is, is just surrounded by, saturated with all of these truths. Paul's saying, set your mind on these gospel realities. If you'll do this, then you'll be able to act like citizens of heaven and brothers and sisters in the Lord, co-laborers in the gospel. I heard uh, this quote recently. It was spoken by a pastor in the 19th century, and he was addressing the topic of revival, and it's, he was kind of like giving learnings from a lot of research of revivals. This is what he says. When a whole neighborhood 
had been well watered with the showers of grace. No drop of blessing has descended there where a spirit of controversy and strife has obtained a footing. The spirit of God hovered around but fled from the scene of discord as from a doomed region where his dove-like temper could find no resting place. Ever remember that his work is sown in peace and them that make peace. Translation. The spirit is like a dove and wants to land on a place at peace. God loves to bless a people at peace. If they're not at peace but want to be, he loves to help them get there. So we've been talking in this whole series about the kind of church we want to be going forward. We want to grow in Christ. We want to mature together. We've been talking about content and community. We've been talking about planning churches. Listen, if we want that, then we can't overlook this. Getting there means we've got to deal with conflict right now. How do we do it? Here's how I want to close. Um, Paul has been giving us an example in the way that he's dealing with the conflict. And so I don't want to bring up any new information here. What I want to do is kind of take all these thoughts and ideas I've been talking about and pull it together in a very concrete list of things. This is how you do it. This is how you deal with conflict. First, put God at the center Paul is constantly reframing the conversation in terms of their relationship to God. Three times in the passage, he says that this is all taking place, this is all happening in the Lord, in the gospel. That's the context in which we're talking about this. Again, he says, brothers, sisters, joy, crown, fellow workers, all of these terms are about our relationship to God. And so how do we put God at the center like this? There's a lot of ways, but here's, here's kind of one surefire thing you can do. Pray. At the very least, pray yourself about the conflict you're in. Ask God to speak into it. That sounds obvious, but it's amazing how much we talk to other people about our conflict versus how much we talk to God about it. It's crazy. This is one of those things that we think we do. We think we pray about this stuff, and we don't. And Paul's saying it only works if you actually do it. More than that. Ask the other person if you can pray together. If you can turn side by side and seek the Lord together and see what he has for you in this conflict, see how he might be transforming you by his grace. When we put God at the center, it it gives us a posture of humility that God can really work with. Now look, if something in you bristles at that, just the thought of getting together with this person that you've been thinking about this whole time and praying with them about this, it's probably because you've got some earthly desire that you don't want to let go of. That bristling is revealing something to you that you need to bring to God. All right, so put God at the center and then secondly, deal with the situation directly. Rather than avoid this or minimize it, Paul brings it out into the open where it can be resolved. Now, This doesn't mean that every conflict in our lives needs to be brought out into the open. Uh, There were good reasons, I think, for why Paul did this here. Normally, conflict should and can get worked out just relationally, one-to-one. Look, Matthew 5, this is what Jesus teaches. He said, if you're at the altar giving your gift, and you get there and you remember that your brother has something against you, 
then first go and be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift. So look, this is not even about something that's been done to you. This is about you being aware. That, you know how you'll hear like, hey, that person's not happy with you. If you hear that, if you become aware that there might be some kind of splinter, Paul, Jesus is saying, yeah, before you like go to church and do stuff, why don't you go be reconciled to this person so you can go to church together and pursue me together. And then he flips it to the other side in Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, now something's been done against you, go and tell him his fault. That's, that's an important word. Not go and tell all your friends. Go and tell him or her his fault. Between you and him alone. If he listens to you, then you've gained your brother. If he doesn't listen now, take two or three others with you or two others with you. That every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses you then, then bring it to the church. You see, there's a process for this. And the point of the process is that we follow it. So we're, we're not allowed to simply sweep things under the rug. We're not allowed to write people off. We are commanded to follow the process all the way through because so much is at stake. That's why. How do you do that? Well, the phrase we use a lot around here is always have the conversation. It's pretty simple to understand. Always have the conversation. And so in the context of conflict, it means if you're rehearsing the conversation in your head, then you probably need to have it with the person. If you're assuming motives or intentions, then have a clarifying conversation. If you feel convicted that you've wronged someone or sinned against someone, then go and confess your sins to them. My rule of thumb is this. If something comes to my mind, something just feels off or not right in a relationship, I kind of let it go. I mean, I just want to, I want to give people the benefit of the doubt. I want to bear with them in patience because, I, man, I need that from others. That's mainly why I do that. But if it comes to mind again, if I, if I start rehearsing it, start having the conversations in my head, then, then I want to go have the conversation. Maybe it's nothing. But I tell you what, if I don't have the conversation, it's probably going to become something in my head. So we have the conversation. Having the conversation helps us deal with the actual issues rather than our assumptions and projections and fears. All right, put God at the center, tackle the thing directly with gentleness. And then three, deal with people relationally. We've seen Paul's affection for them. They're loved and longed for. They're partners in the gospel. But now also notice that he doesn't command them to do this. He entreats them. That's the word. It's not the same thing as command. And to entreat is an appeal based on love and relationship. He could command them. He's an apostle. He could stand over them and demand that they do this, but he doesn't. He comes alongside them and pleads with them in love, as friends, as co-laborers. Let's, come on, let's work this out. Paul lets his deepest feelings for them set the tone. It made me aware of how often in conflict we want to depersonalize people. We want to like objectify them in our minds because that makes it easier for us to vent, to lead with our anger and our disappointment. Can you imagine how different the conversation would be if we led with our love? If we dealt with people relationally? So before you leave here and, and, and approach someone because you're like, yeah, I got to deal with this directly, do it this way. Think about how you can communicate in the beginning of the conversation your love for them. 
their value in Christ, how you appreciate them, how thankful you are for them. If you can do any of that, do you know how much that will change the tone of the conversation? Here's the fourth and last thing, amen. Do all of this, put God at the center, deal with it directly, deal with people relationally, do all of that in community. In verse two, he asks the two women to agree in the Lord. Then in verse three, he involves this other guy or other person, his true companion. That's what he's called. He said, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. Getting other people involved in our conflict is so helpful. We are so much more likely to do the other three things with somebody else in the room, I promise you. Here's the other thing, though. We don't only need to invite others in. We also need to invite ourselves to the party sometimes. As far as I know, these women didn't ask for help. Paul has inserted himself into this situation, and he has inserted this other person into this situation. And so if your brothers and sisters, like if your GC friends are quarreling or avoiding each other or are divided about something, it is not okay to say, well, that's not my business. It's your business. It's a family business. We have an obligation and a joy, by the way, to get involved in each other's lives, to help each other. Paul is saying, take this letter that I've written, learn from it, apply it, help each other with it, get in each other's lives with the scriptures and work it out. Help each other believe these truths and apply them in every area of life, including and especially your conflict. He's calling for ground support, basically. He can't do this work with them because he's not there, and so he needs somebody who's on the ground to get face-to-face to get into it with him. And it just struck me about how our church is, is, is structured, that this is what we do. This is what a GC is. This is what a gospel community is. When we gather in our groups throughout the week, we're putting flesh and bones on the sermon. We're helping each other. We're getting face-to-face and helping each other believe the gospel and work it out in everything. This is how a church works. I say things, and then you help each other do them. I'm in that you as well. I also get in the GC and get helped, because I need it. This is how a church grows. If we're not doing that in our groups, we're going to have such a low ceiling as a church. And I'm, I'm convinced that we need to lean into this more. I just think we're way too timid about pressing into each other's lives. We're way too shy about asking personal questions and providing personal accountability. Some of you are doing it, and it's fantastic. I just think as a whole, we could lean into this more. And Paul's saying, we can do this with tremendous confidence. We don't have to be shy about it. We're in the Lord. We're in his hands. He's gonna do the work. We can just step into it with that kind of confidence. Uh, the other night I was watching the Mavericks game. This is the first time I've been able to talk about it. Um, we lost game six. Here's what struck me in this game though. This is not another basketball illustration, I promise. Uh, it was, there was a, like an 18,000 person crowd and I haven't seen that at a sporting event in a long time. And it, it completely took me off guard because there was one point in the game when somebody hit a big three and there was just this eruption of celebration, of cheering. Like it, it came through the TV and I was like, whoa, like it, it hit me. 
And for whatever reason, right in that moment, I thought, I thought of heaven. I know that's why I'm a pastor. Do that thing. But it was because of this verse at the end of this passage where Paul makes this comment that their names are written in the book of life. I had that in my head. Why would he say that? Why would he point us to the day when the book of life is open and the names are read? I think he's saying, I want you to think about that day and the implications for dealing with conflict. Now, when I heard the eruption inside American Airlines Arena, I thought of the day in heaven when Jesus will announce names and the whole place will erupt in praise. Jesus will say, John Griffin has finished the race and the whole place will be like, yeah! And we're praising Jesus for his faithfulness in John's life. He will say, Taylor Shepard has finished the race. And we'll be like, yeah! Holden Walker has finished the race. Yes! And just on and on. And we will not get tired of celebrating that in each other. And Paul's saying, think about that. Think about the day when all of these people's names are announced and we're going to celebrate and rejoice over them. And now think about this day when you're just petty fighting over this stuff with them. It doesn't make any sense. There's no congruence to it. Think about the day. Think about who they are. People whose names are written in the book of life and then deal with the conflict you have. For the sake of your own lives, for the sake of Christ and his church and for the sake of the mission of God in the world. Deal with it. Those are my words. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.